The Neverland Podcast, episode 58. Welcome to Neverland. Take a start of the right and straight until morning. Neverland. To all who come to this happy place, welcome. And now, please welcome your host for the podcast. He's the pen. I got pen sword on the pen now! Actually, I got his microphone. He's grown up. You promise never to grow old. Here age relives fond memories of the past. His nose got real big. Well, who wants to be And now... Your host, Jeremy. Hey, how you doing? Did you have your pixie in your pocket? Well, take her out, sprinkle some pixie dust. We've got to fly to Neverland. We've got a great show for you today. We are going to have a nice conversation with uh, Disney writer and uh, Star Wars Rebels executive producer for like the first season, uh, Greg Weissman. This guy has done a lot of work, and we're going to talk all about how he got started in writing uh, and what it takes to really to write professionally. And, wow, it's he's got a lot of insight and a lot of passion for what he does, and you're really going to love this. Also, he's got a new book. In fact, he's got a series of books that he's working on, and we're going to talk a little bit about this book series. Also, we're going to have ourselves a little Neverland contest where you could win a copy of the first book in his series, which is Reign of the Ghosts. Sounds creepy, doesn't it? Well, uh, he'll tell us all about his book series, and you're going to be excited about it. And also in the show notes, I will provide an Amazon link if you wish to purchase a copy of the book yourself. He'd really appreciate it because he wants to be able to keep going and writing these books. And after you hear about some of the things he's written, I'm sure you are going to be very interested in reading it. I know I am. Um, And maybe we'll have a book review on it later, but I'm going to give you all a chance to maybe kind of look at it uh, yourselves. Also, uh, something I want to kind of throw out there. I'm, I'm thinking of adding something to the website, which I think this will be fun. Okay, so you know our email address, podcast at neverlandpodcast.com. Here's what I would like you to do, because, you know, I refer to you all as my Neverlanders, Lost Boys and Pixies alike. And uh, so around here, you know, I'm the Pan, so I'm Pan Jeremy. And then, of course, you're familiar with Lost Boy Jesse, Lost Boy Phil, and Pixie Heather. Well, out there, I would like you to also... Stand up and declare yourselves a lost boy or a pixie by emailing to podcast at neverlandpodcast.com and say that you are lost boy, whatever your name is, or pixie, whatever your name is. Uh, And here's where we're going to make this fun. I want you to be a little bit creative because uh, if you're familiar with the Peter Pan story, you know, if you've read the book, you'll notice that they have nicknames like Toodles and Don't Ask and things like that. So I want you to come up with your lost boy or pixie nickname and make it something that tells us a little bit about you. Uh, Like, I'm a big fan of Spider-Man, so I am actually going to put myself now on this new page, which will be Spider-Pan. Because, see, it fits, because I'm the Pan, and I'm a Spider-Man fan, so it's Spider-Pan. Get it? Uh, 
Uh, and I'm going to get to Philip and Jesse and Heather to come up with their own nicknames as well, and I'll start listing these. But we'll put them all up on the website, and we'll have our own official Neverland community. And I might even make it to where when we have a contest that I want you to be one of our official Neverlanders before you are able to enter. So keep that in mind here, and I think I might even start it now. with uh, We're going to give away, like I said, a copy of Greg Weissman's book, Reign of the Ghosts. Uh, I'll give you some details on that later, but uh, for now, we need to get started with a little bit of news from Disneyland. This is Gary Gnu, and the no Gnu's is good Gnu show. The only TV Gnu's program guaranteed to contain no Gnu's whatsoever. Neverland news from the Disney parks. Okay, this one, I actually got a lead from Paul Berry of A Window to the Magic. He was posting about this on Facebook, and I thought it was important enough. Uh, the news actually comes from dlandlive.com. And uh, they have a note on here. It says, We are heading into the traditional refurbishment season where many attractions, shops, and areas close for work. The 60th anniversary of Disneyland is also fast approaching, and management seems to be taking advantage of this time to do some extra work. As a result, the closure list is large and always changing. We do our best to keep it up to date, but Disney is constantly adjusting it as well. Keep checking back often for updated, updated information. Once again, from DLandLive.com. And here's the current list. Uh, the Budin Bakery Tour is closing uh, for refurbishment. Uh, it looks like they're expecting it to open around October 21st. Uh, to January 26th. I'm not sure how they've listed these things, so I'll just kind of read them off for you. Uh, but Muffin Vision 3D, as you know, is closed because it's going to be housing the, the first time in forever of Frozen Sing-Along. Uh, and that's going from December 10th through May 15th. So it's not clear if Muffin Vision 3D is actually returning. Um, so, okay, so the Boot and Bakery Tour, now that I'm looking at this, that closed on October 21st and is expect to, expected to reopen January 26th. So, hopefully very soon. But the Magic Theater, known as Captain EO, uh, closed on January 5th and it's supposed to be reopening January 15th. Uh, but that is to remove a Big Hero 6 preview, and it's not yet clear, though, if Clapton EO is going to be returning. Uh, Condor Flats and Grizzly Peak Airfield closed January 6th. We're expected to come back around May 14th. And uh, Soarin' Over California closed on January 6th. It's planned to be reopening on May 14th. Matterhorn Bobsleds closed on January 7th. Open on May 15th, expected for refurbishment. World of Color uh, will be dark from January 7th through March 12th to receive a multi-month refurbishment. Uh, and Paradise, Paradise Bay will be drained during this. Uh, the Mini Adventures of Winnie the Pooh from January 12th to April the 2nd is set for refurbishment. Exact reopening date, though, date, though is yet unknown. Uh, the Haunted Mansion, of course, is closing early January. Uh, it's supposed to come back January 22nd. Uh, they're taking, of course, the Haunted Mansion holiday overlay. Splash Mountain closed for four-month-long refurbishment. I expect to be coming back in April. All of Critter Country closing also on the 12th and expected to come back uh, or sometime in April. And uh, Davy Crockett Explorer Canoes closed January 12th uh, for possible refurbishment. I guess uh, we're not clear exactly, but it is currently closed until about April. Uh, the Snow White Grotto and Wishing Well closing January 19th until sometime in the end of April. Uh, and it is part of a Sleeping Beauty Castle refurbishment. 
So yes, Sleeping Beauty Castle. Reopening date is not yet known. Closed through at least early February 2015. Uh, that will be closing January the 19th. The Redwood Creek Challenge Trail. I'm not that familiar with that, but that is closed until March. Grizzly River Run. Reopening date not yet known. Disneyland Railroad closing January 26th. Reopening date is not yet known, but it's closed at least through early February. It's a small world. Uh, it's just going to remove the holiday overlay, so that should be back around February 5th. Peter Pan's flight is set for a January through May closure. Uh, this is rumored to facilitate installation of similar projection technology what was in store, that was installed inside Alice in Wonderland uh, this last summer. Uh, so this could be very exciting. Ariel's Grotto is being closed for refurbishment. We don't know when it's going to reopen. And, of course, Luigi's Flying Tires uh, is being completely altered and changed because the uh, current format of it, well, just didn't go over very well. Hello out there in TV land. Now here's something we hope you'll really like. A Neverland Podcast Television Review. This Tuesday marked the premiere of Agent Carter on ABC television, and hopefully most of you were checking this out. I have been letting you know that it was coming uh, into kind of that gap between the first and second half of the the season of Marvel's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., and I must say, uh, I really did like this. This was a lot of fun. Uh, There's definitely some things we're learning about uh, about Peggy. Uh, I think she needs to work on her people skills because I tell you what, if you punch Jarvis in the face, and realize, well, maybe you shouldn't have done that. It's kind of a good idea to apologize. Also, I would say when somebody does stick up for you in front of people in a meeting and stick their neck out for you, I would say it's also good people skills. Even if you're about to say, you know, I would appreciate if you didn't do that. It wasn't necessary. That you at least show some gratitude first because somebody did step out and do something nice for you. So always lead with, well, I do appreciate that. But uh, let me ask you not to do that again. Maybe, you know, so maybe some people skills need to be learned. Uh, I did see some particular uh, typical, like, yeah, okay, we get it. You have to do this. Where you have to have, because she's a, a, a you know, strong female protagonist, we have to have the typical uh, chauvinist pig jerk person for her to confront and uh, threaten with a fork, actually, in this case. So that's kind of becoming a staple of this sort of a thing. And it's like, okay, yeah, yeah, you know, let's let's get back to the, the stuff that we're expecting some new things. So there were some things I thought were kind of staple and kind of, you know, a little bit cliche that did happen in, in the two episodes we got to see. But overall, very exciting you know, and I love the way they're kind of integrating some of the things, you know, launching it right from Captain America, the first Avenger, uh, giving a little flashback to help, help everybody, I guess, if they weren't paying attention to remember who this character is and getting to see where she is currently. And uh, big props to Haley Atwell. I think she's playing this very well because she's she's got this proper British demeanor she's putting on and yet uh, and and getting to some pretty cool action sequences and yet still able to show some good emotional side when her uh, her roommate uh Golly, well, I don't want to give any spoilers in case this is on your DVR, but something happens to one of her roommates, and it's very sad. And I was kind of shocked that it happened. I didn't expect it. I thought it was it was just kind of too bad. Well, I guess I've probably given away what happened. <laughs> so hopefully you have seen this, because I want to be careful I don't spoil it, just in case it's on your DVR. But I must say, I really liked it. I am looking forward to, uh, I guess we've got another seven weeks of this series. And it seems we've got a lot of good storylines that are developing, and I'd like to you know see a bit more interaction with some of the new characters. Uh, I would like to kind of get to know some of the new characters they've put her in. And I am hoping that she gets also to 
interact with uh, like Dum Dum Dugan and some of the other characters that uh, we did see in Captain America that are staple Marvel characters. Uh, maybe they even, uh, you know, find some uh, little, a little bit of Hydra connection would be going on, perhaps. Uh, but yeah, overall, I'm very, very happy with this series. I'll be very excited to see where it goes. And if you haven't been watching it, well, I highly recommend, I think you can find the first episode on Hulu. Check it out. If you've been enjoying Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., I think you'll enjoy this. Or if you enjoyed the, the Captain America, the first Avenger show or movie, you'll definitely enjoy this show. Uh, it's it's going to be great, and I think this is going to make a big household name out of Haley Atwell. Neverland Feedback. All right, we have some new Twitter followers that uh, I'd like to give a little shout-out to. Steve Potter. Now, of course, instead of the T's, he was using sevens, so I'm assuming it's Steve Potter. Uh, and there's a few other... I, boy, I'm going to mess up the pronunciation, a few of them. But welcome to Walil Cramp, Gayatina, Gayatana Vance, Stephen Bockelder, Nathan Arnold... Uh, also, I'd like to thank some retweets. If you are retweeting our our show tweets, when I you know when I put out there to hey here's a link to watch the show or listen to the show, sorry, when I put out those links and I put them on Twitter and you retweet those, I really do appreciate that, and I would like like for you to continue. And heck, uh, share them on Facebook if you see us on Facebook. If you have liked our Neverland podcast page, so you can find when we have those posts there on Neverland uh, and on Facebook. Which we also have been, you know, we do have our Marvel Monday, Turtle Tuesday, and Wayne Wednesday. Wayne, of course, meaning Batman. Uh, you know, we do have a lot of fun over on the like page. So make sure you come and like us on the Neverland podcast page, which you will find out how to get there, of course, in the sounder at the end. But we have uh, some new people who did retweet uh, Tim Nidell. Jason Schleierman, Schleierman, I'm sorry, I always get his name messed up, and I know who that guy is. And then Luca Boshi, uh, Katia Minotti, I'm probably getting your names wrong, I apologize, Brian Tetrialt. And also, we do have a Facebook group that is separate from the like page. Uh, you might have to do a bit more extra search to get to that one. But we do have a group, which I'm hoping will be a little bit more interactive than the like page because Facebook is changing the rules a little bit. But a couple of new people joined to the group this week, Joanne Stotts and Pierre, Jason Kelly. So I would love to welcome you to the Neverland Facebook pages, and thank you for retweeting. And uh, we love it when you do these type of things. It helps get the word out there about Neverland and lets me know that you are enjoying the show uh, and of course to really let me know you enjoy the show sending us those reviews on itunes and things like that that is just awesome and of course if you would like to support the neverland podcast uh, then i do have a patreon link for you if you go to neverlandpodcast.com you will find the icon there for patreon you'll also find an icon about give kids of the world because of all the money donated to me through patreon half of that i pledge will go to give kids the world and they take uh, terminally ill children and their families uh, they have a ranch down around disney world in, in orlando and they take those children to disney world and their families of course and i think that's just a, a wonderful wonderful thing and so if we can help them out uh, that's just it's it's a win on every situation at least in my opinion <laughs> maybe you maybe you don't think they should go to disney world maybe you think they should go to disneyland i don't know but still you know it's a good thing to help out so find those links once again as i said at neverlandpodcast.com and now it's time to get on to some major content, our great conversation with Greg Weissman. Listen all the way to the end of today's show, and I will tell you how you can win a copy of his book, Reign of the Ghosts. Enjoy! To Disney and beyond! Oh! 
All right, Neverlanders, here he is. We've got somebody who's worked behind the scenes. We've had some voice actors on here before, but now we have someone who's actually written some things that you've probably seen and some things that you really really need to read. Uh, You're going to be familiar with his work, even if you're not aware that you are. We have with us the great Greg Wiseman. Yay! Hey, Jeremy. (laughs) Well, uh... This is really, really cool because you've actually done a lot of stuff and you're kind of living the dream as far as uh, writing goes at this point. And as far as I'm concerned, anyway, <laughs> you've done just about everything. Uh, uh, well, but- I, I try. <laughs> <laughs> But we'll kind of go through that. But first off, I want to get right to something that's really cool that you've done, some new projects. You have a new novel series you've started. Uh, I do, yes. I uh, I have two books that I've written. Um, the first one's called Reign of the Ghosts, and the second one is called Spirits of Ash and Foam. They're the first two books in what I intend to be a nine-book series. And... Um, you know, if you like the cartoons I've done, like Gargoyles or Spectacular Spider-Man, Witch or Young Justice, I guarantee you'll like these books. It's the same kind of, um, you know, complex storytelling, great characters. Um, and uh, I think, uh, you know, your listeners will really like them. Yeah, well, that supernatural angle kind of going on there with the ghosts and things like that sounds fun. Yeah, I, you know, I'm very proud of these books and definitely want the chance to write more of them. So, you know, as much uh, as your readers can help me out, I appreciate it. Yeah. yeah. The more we read, the more we buy, the more you get to publish. And so the more we get to read and buy and everybody's happy. <laughs> exactly. Well, uh, let's go start from the very beginning, which is a very good place to start. So uh, a lot of people who write, they, uh, they start kind of writing sometimes when they're young, when they're children, they'll write little stories. Was that how it was for you? Uh, yeah, actually, it, it was. I uh, started writing uh, at least by second grade. Mm-hmm. And, um, uh, you know, never stopped. <laughs> <laughs> um, I've pretty much wanted to be a writer my entire life. I'm, I'm definitely, you know, a story editor. Uh, I, I mean, a storyteller, I should say. I've also been a story editor, but what I meant to say was storyteller. Um, you know, if it were the Middle Ages, I'd be uh, going from town to town with a lute or something like that. So, uh, <laughs> um, since no one wants to see me in tights and no one wants to hear me sing, it all worked out for the best. But um, <laughs> I, uh, I, you know, but storytelling, that's what I do. So, you know, I'll, I write comic books, I write television. Um, I've written a couple of movies that haven't been made, but I wrote them. Um, and, and now the novels. So, uh, that's what, uh, that's what I want to do. It's always been my goal. So what was the first thing you got to write in a professional capacity that uh, you, somebody actually paid you for? <laughs> Uh, that was probably DC Comics in uh, 1983. Um, I wrote uh, a number of different uh, things that didn't get published. Um, I wrote a superhero story that I made up, uh, original superheroes called Red, White, and Blue. Um, I then wrote a Western <clears throat> for them called Outlaw. Um, and then uh, ultimately 
wrote a Black Canary miniseries um, for DC that also didn't get published. Um, and then I started uh, with my partner, Carrie Bates, writing uh, Captain Adam, and that was finally stuff started to get published. And there were a few random issues in there as well, but I think the first professional work I did uh, where I got paid were those unpublished things for DC Comics. And then in animation, the first uh, the first thing I ever wrote with Carrie, again, was uh, an episode of Gem and Holograms, one episode, um, wow. <clears throat> called Video Wars. And um, we wrote that together, and we're hoping it would lead to a whole bunch of cartoon work, and it really didn't. It led to nothing, actually. But um, uh, later, years later, I went to work for Disney TV Animation and ultimately uh, became an executive there um, and developed a bunch of shows, uh, which led me to develop Gargoyles, which led me to become a producer. Um, and I actually became a producer first and a writer second on the show. Um, which is an unusual route, but that's <laughs> how uh, my particular career worked out. And, and then since then, uh, since Gargoyles, I moved, uh, moved to DreamWorks for a couple of years, and then I went freelance in 1998, and I've been a freelance writer, producer, actor, voice director, um, you name it, I've done it, um, and uh, all freelance since uh, 98. My goodness. It sounds like you really just had to kind of keep plucking away at it until you finally had that success you wanted. Yeah, it's definitely true. And, and, you know, I have this great body of work that I'm extremely proud of now. I mean, I've been at it for a while, so I should. Um, but, uh, you know, I still don't feel like I have a career. <laughs> I mean, you know, I, you know, I'm constantly going from one studio or, uh, to another, from one network to another. Um, I constantly have to reinvent myself and I constantly have to sell myself over and over again. You kind of feel like it by this time, people would know who I was know what I do. And, and, uh, but I've constantly got to rework it and, um, and move around and find the, find the jobs. I'm constantly, I'm literally always looking for work because even if I have a job, those jobs last, if I'm lucky a couple of years, so I've got to constantly be on the lookout for what is the next thing I'm going to do. And that's, that's even when I've got a, a really solid gig. That sounds a lot like what I've heard uh, Rob Paulson as a voice actor, what he has to do, even though he's created quite a name for himself and all these cartoons he's worked on. He's always got to go in fresh and, and try to get that next job and that next audition and hope that that series lasts for a few years. So he has something steady, but at, at any point that series could end and he's got to go look for something else. Yeah, it's very true. I mean, I know Rob and he's a great guy and he's incredibly talented. Um, and, but you know, it, it's true for pretty much any career in the arts. And because whether you're a dancer or a singer or an actor or a writer or a painter or whatever, um, it's a brutal way to make a living. You know, it's a great hobby, <laughs> but it's a brutal way to make a living because you face a lot of rejection and you're constantly having to, to reinvent and you're constantly having to resell yourself. Most artists aren't mentally built for the sales process, you know, especially when what they're selling is themselves. Yeah. Um, and yet 
if you're going to make a career at it, if you're going to use that to pay your bills, um, you know, food, shelter, that sort of thing, um, then you've got to be prepared to, to be that salesman for yourself because if you can't do it, who the hell will? <laughs> yeah. And you definitely have to have a lot of passion and a lot of drive to just keep at it whenever you're going to get rejected multiple times. You have to have passion to say, you know what, I've been rejected, but this is what I want. This is what I'm going for. Nothing's going to stop me, and I'm not even going to stop me. I'm keeping going. Uh, That's Uh, absolutely true. I mean, if you don't have that passion, if you don't feel like this is what I have to do with my life, then you should be doing something else. And like I said, you can always write on the side as a hobby. You can always go to a community theater and have some fun acting where there's no pressure, where you're not trying to earn money off it. Um, no one's telling you, uh, don't write anymore or something like that. But if you don't have the drive and the passion and, and the need, the, fe- the feeling like there's just nothing else I can do with my life except this, then you're not going to survive all the rejection and all the auditions and all the whatever that it takes to make a living at it. So you need that passion to get through. If you have that passion or if one of your listeners has that passion, they should absolutely go for it. But I don't want to be a Pollyanna here. I don't want to pretend that life is easy once you have that passion and you go for it, or even that it's a guarantee that ultimately you'll break through and it'll work for you. That may not be true. Uh, And I don't want to pretend that it is. Um, If you feel like this is what you need to do, then do it. Great. But let's not pretend that that's a, that that feeling is enough to guarantee you. You need all sorts of things to work in your favor to make it happen. A, you need talent. Yeah. You need actual talent in the field that you are entering. B, you need education. Now, by education, I don't necessarily mean, you know, a PhD in writing or anything like that. But, but what you need is you need to know your craft. Whether you're an actor, a writer, a painter, you need to know your craft. You need to know, even if you're choosing to do things differently from the people who came before you, you need to know what they've done and know that you're making a conscious choice to do something differently as opposed to just, you know, stumbling into X, Y, or Z. And then C, you need some amount of luck or timing or, you know, opportunity that you cannot control. What you can do in, in playing the percentages is put yourself in a position to succeed when and if those opportunities arise. So, for example, you're networking with as many people in the business as possible so that, and as often as possible without being such a pain in the ass that they don't want to talk to you ever again. (laughs) So what that means is that, you know, you talk to some guy in January and he's like, yeah, you know, I, I like working with new people. Uh, I might give you a chance, but the thing is, I just don't have anything right now. Um, all right, fine. So February comes, March comes, April comes. Maybe you call him again. Uh, and he's like, yeah, yeah, I remember you. That's right. Uh, yeah, I'm still, I'd still be interested in working with you, but uh, I, I still don't have anything. You know, then you don't call him for seven months and then you call him and, and he's like, oh, geez, man, you know, I had something, you know, your name wasn't at the top of my list and I kind of forgot. Now Mm -hmm. I don't have anything. Part of it is, is you've got to be talking to people on an ongoing basis so that when and if they have something, they don't have to remember you. You're, you're already in their head because you've 
got a relationship with them. It also means writing a lot of stuff. To, I mean, again, if you're a writer, yeah. it means <laughs> writing a lot of stuff on spec. You know, you write that script that the script itself may never sell. But the point is, is you write it, you put it in a drawer for a while, you pull it out later, you look at it again. Meanwhile, you've written a second thing and a third thing. You rewrite it. You do all these things so that you've got these great samples so that if someone's willing to read you, you can send it in, whether it's an agent or a studio or an individual. You can send them stuff that you think, this is really good stuff. This is actual good stuff. And you got to be careful. You've got to have a pretty objective and honest view of who you are. At the, or not really who you are, that's not what I meant, but uh, you know what level your ability is at. If you're not objective with yourself, if you just think everything you do is golden and everyone should just recognize it immediately, you're already in trouble. <laughs> yeah. um, because what that means is you send them something to read that isn't actually the best you can do or that may be the best you can do at that moment but isn't actually good yet. They'll read it and they'll go, well, this writer X sent me this script and it sucks. So like six months later, you've really learned something and you've got a new sample and you send it to that person and he's like, oh man, I've read X already. Mm. I don't need to read X again. I already know X sucks. You've poisoned the water with that first thing that you sent out that wasn't really ready to be sent out. So you need to have people who can read you that you trust. Um, You've always got to take responsibility for your own work. So just because someone else said this is bad or this is good, you've got to evaluate that for yourself. But you need readers you can trust, and you need to be able to read yourself honestly and objectively so that you know whether your materials are good or bad. Because, again, you can poison the water really easy. People have a lot, particularly samples like that. You know, people have limited patience for reading that stuff. And if... They read it, read you, I should say, and say, this guy's no good. This girl's no good. The odds of them being willing to read you a second time, even if you've improved markedly, you know, exponentially in between, but the odds of them being willing to read you again are incredibly slim. Yeah, that that would be you getting in your own way because you did you didn't do things in a proper fashion. You didn't make yourself be the best you can be before you submitted it. So that's kind of where I was getting at with getting in your own way is like you've got to just keep working on it, make yourself the best you can be, and don't doubt yourself to the point where you just quit. You have to have enough to keep going. And, and even if you don't make the, this high level of success, as long as you're writing something and you're improving and you're getting better, you are building something and at least having a personal success. And as you were saying, you can spend time doing some community theater and doing some local things. And then one day, you know, while you've been working and building yourself and making yourself that better, and when that opportunity presents itself, you have to have the sense to take it and make sure you have the best thing presentable. Like you were saying, that's as that's good to be able to give to them and not have something that they're going to read and say, wow, this just stinks. So, yeah. Well, again, that's just an example. The point is, yeah. is that you want to get yourself in every way you can in the best position to succeed when an opportunity comes up, whether that's writing, networking, obviously you want to proofread. I can't tell you how many um, <laughs> samples I've received from writers who didn't know how to proofread. So, you know, Look, I'll, if I'm reading something and on the first page there's one typo, look, we all make typos. I'll keep going. If I yeah. see two typos, I'm done. 
I'm yeah. done. Do you find it easier? Do you find it easier when you're trying to be objective on something you've written if you set it aside for say a week or a month or something and then come back and just read it? That way you you kind of get it as a fresh look at it. For beginning writers, I recommend setting it aside for a longer period of time, week, month, whatever, whatever they, and I recommend they write something else in between. In yeah. other words, write something, set it aside. While you set it aside, you don't stop writing. Start a second thing. Then pull out the first thing, you know, um, while you're setting the second thing aside and rewrite. Because in theory, the more you write, the better you'll get. You'll look at that mm-hmm. early stuff and go, ugh. I mean, you'll look at it and go, ugh. You know, <laughs> yeah. forget other people. You'll look at it and cringe and then go, oh, I can make this better now. I, I, I know more. I can do more with it. Um, I don't set things aside for quite that long because my personal experience at this point, A, I've been doing this a long time. Yeah. And B, um, usually I write under deadline, so I don't have time to set it aside for very long. Um, and C, I'm a procrastinator. So, you know, if I set something aside for too long, um, it, it starts to grow big in my head, like, Ooh, I'll never be able to make this any better. And I'll just, I mean, that was, that's exactly what happened with my first novel. Um, I wrote, uh, Reign of the Ghost 15 years ago, easily. Um, and sent it out to, publishing houses and got rejected everywhere and then um, came up with an idea to make it better and started a rewrite, but then thought, you know, let me just set this aside for a little bit. So I set it aside for what, you know, I planned to be a few weeks. And so 10 years later, I finally pulled the book out again because it had just become the, the rewrite had become intimidating to me. Now, ultimately, when I finally, after finishing the cartoon Young Justice, pulled the book out again and decided to do that rewrite, the rewrite only took me three weeks. The entire novel only took me three weeks to rewrite. Wow. But I, it, had been, you know, it had been so intimidating in my head um, that I kept putting it off and putting it off and putting it off. I was afraid of it. Um, so, I mean, it's something to be careful of, I suppose, but again... I do recommend for a new writer to put it aside for long enough that you actually can get some perspective on it. But for me personally, it's better. For, I mean, I do always put things aside, but usually it's one night. You know, in other words, I'll finish something and I'll say, I'm not going to proofread it now. I'm not going to revise it now. I'm going to put it aside for a day. Then I'll have look at it tomorrow with fresh eyes. Um, but again, usually I'm writing under deadline, so I can't afford much more time than that. <laughs> yeah. So what was the transition like though, when, uh, after spending so much time over, you know, at DC, uh, then when you're transitioning to do into animation, was there a kind of a, a learning curve you had to get around with a, with more of a script writing angle? Um, there was overlap for starters. I actually was still working uh, freelance for DC once I started at Disney um, but again, my story is a little unusual because when I got to Disney, I was actually an executive at first. Mm. Um, so I was a junior executive, worked my way up to director of series development, um, then became a producer, still not actually doing the writing myself. I did a lot of rewriting, a lot of editing, but not actually sitting down to write myself. And I'll admit that initially I was very intimidated by the teleplay format. Um, the format itself 
gave me pause because it seemed so artificial. Um, you know, I, in high school and college, I wrote prose and of course that's incredibly, uh, flexible, organic way to write, writing a script for a comic book because everyone's comic book scripts are different, um, is pretty straightforward and easy and you don't have to worry too much about, uh, the way you word things as long as you're, uh, you've got clarity in your descriptions because that's just going to an artist, one human being. And so, you know, obviously you take care with your dialogue, but, um, you know, you can use as many or as few words as you want in describing the panel descriptions in a, for a comic book. Um, but, you know, for a teleplay, the page, you know, the page count matters. Um, because page count reflects the length of the piece generally. And, uh, and obviously, particularly for an animated series, you've got, in essence, 22 minutes um, in a normal half-hour cartoon because if you figure in eight minutes of titles and commercials and stuff mm-hmm. like that, credits, whatever. Um, so, you know, the script can't get too long, so you can't got to find very efficient ways to describe things. Um, so the format itself, I found very intimidating. And then I finally wrote an episode of Gargoyles myself, um, after having edited other people's and, and given notes, et cetera, on other people's for years, literally. And, you know, it was like, not so bad. Again, it's one of these things where you build up the problems in your head way more than they really exist. And, <laughs> yeah. uh, and I've been writing ever since, um, obviously. And, now I'm very comfortable in a teleplay format. Yeah, and you've done quite a bit in there. Uh, but we will – I got to have this story just because it's fun, and anyone who hasn't heard it I think would love this. But uh, it, it took a long time to actually get Gargoyles, uh, the green light to be made, but it was actually inspired partly by the gummy bears. Uh, yeah, that's true. We, um, uh, I was at Disney – um, and I worked a little bit on uh, a television series called Disney's Adventures with Gummy Bears, which was created by a guy named Jim Magon, incredibly talented guy who also was co-creator of Tailspin and um, uh, DuckTales and numerous shows there. Um, and I thought Gummy Bears was just this fantastic show we all did, but we also thought it didn't get a lot of respect. And there were a couple reasons for that. Um, it had this great medieval backstory and this great um, uh, rich uh, character history and all that stuff. But, you know, they were little multicolored bears. And there was another show out at the same time called The Care Bears, which were about little multicolored bears. And The Care Bears was a very saccharine show, kind of awful. Um <laughs> And um, Gummy Bears was not saccharine, but Gummy Bears was named after a candy. So there was a lot of confusion between the two properties. And people just sort of took for granted that Gummy Bears was awful, when in fact Gummy Bears was amazing. Yeah. We very consciously, when we started developing Gargoyles, set out to create a show like Gummy Bears that would have that kind of rich backstory and rich mythology to it, but which would garner more respect. And so we created a comedy adventure show that instead of having little multicolored bears, had little multicolored gargoyles. And we thought gargoyles is edgier and more sort of fun and spiky than bears are, teddy bears are. 
A, and B, we uh, have this great medieval backstory, but we had them asleep for a thousand years, so they'd wake up in the 20th century. I don't know if you recall the 20th century, 14 <laughs> years ago, but, um, uh, you know, wake up in the late 20th century, and so we thought the contemporary setting would also set it apart and create a, a, a more dynamic uh, show. Um, and uh, with those things in mind, we pitched the show as a comedy adventure show about colorful little gargoyles to Michael Eisner, who at the time ran the Walt Disney Company. And he passed. He didn't like it. Um, but we still thought there was really something in it, so we went back to the drawing board um, a second time and um, showed the pitch that we had given to Michael to a few other people in the company to try and get some feedback and see what else we might do with this. One of the people we showed it to was a guy named Tad Stones, the creator of Darkwing Duck and Chippendale's Rescue Rangers, among other great shows. Oh, yeah. And um, Tad never worked on Gargoyles except for this one day. He saw the pitch, and he came up with the idea. Um, he said, well, instead of doing uh, all these little gargoyles, what if you had one big gargoyle? We had a female human character in there. She said, you know, he, I mean, rather, Tad said, uh, you know, do a Beauty and the Beast thing. Because as you may recall, Disney had this little movie, Beauty and the Beast. You may have heard of it. <laughs> um, and uh, that really sparked something with me. My background had been comic books. And so I created the character of Goliath with uh, an artist named Greg Guler. And... Um, we took the entire development of the comedy adventure show, put it through the prism of who this new Goliath character was and came out the other side with this action drama. Yeah. Um, and we created this huge long pitch, which we uh, pitched to Michael Eisner six months after the first pitch and he passed. He didn't like it. Um, so the next day, uh, I was at a meeting, what we <laughs> call the post-mortem meeting, um, <laughs> where we were talking with, uh, my two bosses, Bruce Cranston and Gary Kreisel, and with, uh, Jeffrey Katzenberg, who ran the Walt Disney studio there, who was second to Michael Eisner, um, basically in terms of our direct line of report, um, and at the end of this meeting, we'd been talking about other things, but at the end of this meeting, as we started to get up, Jeffrey turned to me and said, and you'll work on Gargoyles some more. And I looked at him and said, well, no. I mean, we pitched it as a comedy. Michael killed it. We pitched it as an action drama. Michael killed it. It's, he's like, no, no, Michael didn't kill it. He just thought it needed more work. Now, at that point in my career, I'd done a lot of pitching to Michael, and I knew a kill when I was slain. So I, um, I knew Michael had killed it, but what this was telling me was that Jeffrey liked it and he wasn't going to contradict Michael in the meeting, at least not in those days, but, um, he liked the idea and he thought it merited more work. And my bosses, Bruce and Gary, they both liked it as well. So I went back to the drawing board with my team for a third time and this time we looked at the show that we'd pitched Michael and we just said, no, we like this show. We're not changing the show at all. The problem isn't the show. The problem is the pitch. So we did not change the show and everything that we took out of the pitch this time 
around ended up still going into the show in one form or another. But we cut the pitch way down. We streamlined the pitch and made it really focused on the Goliath-Elisa relationship, that Beauty and the Beast relationship, which we thought Michael would really latch on to. And, you know, we talked about a few other characters. And, and if you buy the Season 1 DVD, you can see the original pitch that we sold. And, again, that's actually the third pitch or some iteration of the third pitch. But it's, it's one of the extras on the Season 1 DVD is this pitch that we used to sell the show to Michael Eisner and later to affiliates and stuff like that. And that pitch uh, worked, but it was not a different show. It was the same show. It was just a much shorter pitch, much more focused pitch. And at the, so that we went up again in front of Michael. And again, this is you know now a year and a half since we first started developing the show. And um, he bought it. And at the end of the meeting, Jeffrey turned to me and said, you added a lot to that, didn't you? And I said, yes, I did. <laughs> you know, in fact, all we had done was cut. Yeah. And, and it was really I mean. well-timed. Less, less is more, you know I mean? Yeah. It, that, was, that was what we, one of the huge lessons I learned in development is that less is more. Um, you give them too much information, they get distracted by the details, and, and they find things they don't like about it but you give them just the right amount and no more and they might just go for it you know it's very well timed when gargoyles came out because I, I remember it was around about the time that batman the animated series was coming around and and uh being a comic book reader i'm more of a marvel guy though uh there was ads for gargoyles in the comics and everybody was, was kind of looking for those kind of darker type of heroes in the 90s we were we were all gritty in the '90s, you know. We were all angsty, so you had Batman out there, and it was just that show was just killing it. And then Gargoyles comes out, and it has a has some of that similar darkness as Batman, since they only would come out at night, but yet it still had that Disney fun and humor and that great fantasy element. And like you were talking about that backstory of uh, being cursed like that, and then popping out into the modern time, uh, and then all the characters you brought in, my goodness, from from Shakespeare, from mythology, and just so many different fun magical characters that came into it that was a great show well thanks i mean i'm very proud of it we've spent the whole year i've gone from convention to convention celebrating gargoyle's 20th anniversary because this is the 20th anniversary year um for gargoyles um we premiered in 1994 and um and you know i'm very proud of the show uh it's still you know of all the things I've done, it's still probably my favorite, um, certainly in television. And, uh, you know, and I've loved other shows I've done since, particularly Young Justice and Witch and uh, Spectacular Spider-Man. But uh, still, at the end of the day, there's nothing quite like Gargoyles. That was my baby. Yeah. But speaking of spectacular Spider-Man, I kind of want to jump on that one because I'm a, I've I've been a huge Spider-Man fan for most of my life. <laughs> and I really loved that series. Uh so I definitely want to talk about that one. Uh I it, it, unfortunately it seemed a bit short-lived uh because you know about that time that that Disney came in and and purchased Marvel, they started from what I've understand of it, they started looking around and saying, "Well, we want to start animating for television with Marvel characters ourselves. And so they looked over at spectacular Spider-Man and uh, there was another series Wolverine and the X-Men and said, well, we're not making those. So we'll just Ixnay those. Uh, is that kind of how well, that that's went? Not down? Exactly. 
that's not really what happened. I mean, I, I can't speak about Wolverine and the X-Men. I don't know what the, uh, the corporate whatever was on that show, but, um, on spectacular, the thing to keep in mind is that, um, Sony had the, the movie and television rights to Spider-Man, mm-hmm. not Marvel. Marvel yeah. made money off of spectacular Spider-Man and certainly off of the merchandise. Um, for example, the toys that Hasbro put out, but, um, but Marvel didn't control the animation rights to Spider-Man because in an earlier deal, they had sold those off to Sony. So Spectacular Spider-Man was not made by Marvel. It was made by Sony. Marvel very much participated. We worked very closely with folks at Marvel, listened to what they said. They gave us notes. We made changes, all sorts of stuff. But, I don't, but the fact is, is that our bosses, our bosses on the show were Sony people, not Marvel people. So then um, around the time uh, that Marvel bought Disney, actually just before it, as I recall, although it's been a few years, um, Sony and Marvel were having some kind of negotiation about uh, the live-action movies, which, of course, are billion-dollar earners. Yeah. Um, And in order to get some concession, and I don't know what it was, but in order to get some concession from Marvel, about these live-action films, Sony agreed to give Marvel back the animation rights to Spider-Man. That created a problem for our show in that Marvel now had the right to make Spider-Man cartoons and Sony no longer did. So Sony couldn't continue spectacular. Mm. They no longer had the right to make an animated show based on Spider-Man. However... Marvel couldn't continue spectacular either because Sony owned that version of Spider-Man. They own the art, they own the storyline. So the only way Marvel could have made spectacular is if Marvel paid Sony to let them use that version of the show. And you can imagine how enthusiastic Marvel would have been to do that. Like Spider-Man, of course they consider to be their marquee character. And the notion of paying Sony for the to do Spider-Man wasn't going to fly. It just wasn't. Yeah. So they set about to create their own Spider-Man show, which became uh, Ultimate Spider-Man, which is still on the air. Yeah. Um, and they're still making more of those. And, and that's what happened. Um, now, in an, around this time, Disney bought Marvel, but it didn't have much to do with why Spectacular, um, you know, couldn't continue. Mm. That that was kind of, I, I'm not saying it might not have added to the mix a little bit, but the fact of the matter is it had almost nothing to do with it because even if Disney had not bought Marvel, you'd still be in the same dilemma, which is that Sony owns the spectacular version, but Marvel now has the rights back to make Spider-Man as a cartoon themselves. Mm. And that just creates this conflict that, <clears throat> at least at the time, we couldn't get past. Oh, and that's too bad because that really was a great show. And I had heard that some of the uh, the writers for the show actually had wanted to maybe move over to Marvel and help develop a newer cartoon or find a way to continue it, but it just didn't really work out very well. Well, I think at that point, once Marvel realized they couldn't continue Spectacular, I don't know if they ever wanted to, but in any case, like I said, it was almost, uh, from a business standpoint, impossible. Yeah. Um, they then made a, I think, a conscious decision to 
do a different show, um, not try and do a sort of halfway version of Spectacular, but just do their own show, and they developed Ultimate. Uh, I don't know if there are any writers who overlapped and worked on both, but I know that I didn't. Um, And uh, I'm pretty sure most of the Spectacular writers never worked on Ultimate, but I could be wrong. Yeah. So far, from what I've seen on Ultimate Spider-Man, it seems they've mainly consulted uh, or had have written either by a guy who goes by Man of Action, and then I see a lot of producing credits from Brian yeah, Michael Man Bendis. Man of Action is four guys, and, and oh. uh, um, it, Man of Action is the name of a company, uh, ah. a company run by four uh, very talented writers who worked on, uh, yeah, who did work on Ultimate. I don't know if they're still on it, but they did work on Ultimate. But Marvel created a sort of brain trust to develop all their shows, included Man of Action, um, and uh, Brian Michael Bendis included Joe Casada and a number of other people. Um, and uh, they've used that group to develop a bunch of shows there, Hulk and the Agents of Smash, and um, their latest Avengers show, and, and a number yeah. of others as well. So, um, you know, they're... You know, they know their stuff. I mean, certainly their movies have proven that, you know. Yeah. Um, they, their track record on their movies is kind of amazing. They're truly amazing. I mean, I like some better than others, but there isn't one that I didn't enjoy, you know, that I didn't have fun in the theater while I was watching it. Yeah. And that is a stunning track record. And I'm picky, you know. <laughs> there isn't one that, you know, there are plenty of comic book movies that I haven't liked. But starting with the first Iron Man movie, there isn't one um, Marvel live-action movie that I haven't, you know, that Marvel itself has produced. Yeah. That I haven't thought at the very least was fun to watch. And then there are a bunch of them that are way, you know, that are just fantastic films in and of their own right. But at the very least, each and every one of them has been fun. Yeah, and it's been great seeing a lot of those lesser Marvel characters get a chance to shine because, uh, you know, a lot of people apparently didn't even know who Iron Man was until that movie came out, which to me as a Marvel fan, that kind of surprises me. Like, what? They didn't know who Iron Man was. And so it's really been great. And I, I love, you know, like Guardians of the Galaxy, which I wasn't even that familiar with how that's just blown up and been this huge success. It just goes to show if you put the right people together to develop these type of things and they take their time and develop good stories, develop the characters and, and you know, you can really succeed with these. And so I'm expecting a lot of great things, but I think that's also led to like the current controversy where we found out that Marvel and Sony had been talking to try to get Spider-Man kind of crossed over. And a lot of us Marvel fans and especially Spider-Man fans would absolutely love for Marvel studios to be able to regain control of Spider-Man and, and integrate him into the Marvel cinematic universe and to actually do a better job than what I think Sony did with the amazing Spider-Man two, which I still did enjoy that movie, but it's, it seems like it it was missing something. You know, it's just not quite up to the level of what Sony, I think, is capable of doing. They did, I think, the Tobey Maguire movies, the first two were excellent. The third one was kind of so-so. The first Amazing Spider-Man, another pretty good movie. But, yeah, it's it, it, it seems like they don't know where they want to set the line up as far as 
how realistic they want the movie to appear or how fantastic the movie, the movie wants to appear. And I think Marvel really set the bar high now with the Avengers and with guardians of the galaxy showing that, you know what, you can have the characters themselves be believable, but nothing about the story has to be that realistic. You can have a bunch of aliens coming and invading the earth. And as long as your characters are believable and real, people will buy into it and it will and just go for the ride. And I think Sony really, I, with amazing Spider-Man two, they were, it seemed like they were trying to do that little bit of fantastic with how they presented Electro, but then you have that embarrassing Rhino scene at the end where you have Paul Giamatti in this ridiculous uh, Transformer suit, <laughs> and everybody, this, uh, the Spider-Man fan is going, "That's the Rhino." <laughs> I think it really has that the hit the wall of yeah, you're trying to make this too believable, and in the and not so much of the characters' believability, but the the things that happen in a comic book, and you. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know if I'm making sense, but yeah, there's. Well, there's I haven't seen mind. Amazing Spider-Man too, so I mean I can't comment on that. But um, uh, you know, I, uh, I, I think just from a business standpoint, not creative, I, the notion that um, Sony's going to let go of Spider-Man um, seems just really unlikely to me. And I'm not saying that is. Like, I've got insider information. I have literally zero insider information. But I just look at it from the outside and look at how much money even, you know, the poorest performing of all those Sony Spider-Man movies did still makes a fortune for that company. So oh, yeah. I, I just can't imagine Sony ever, you know, I, as I understand it, as long as they keep making movies, they, Marvel doesn't get the rights back. And I can't see Sony stopping when every movie brings in as much money as it does. Obviously yeah. some do better than others, but yeah. they all make a fortune. So it's just hard to imagine that Sony's going to let it go. Um, yeah. Just from a business standpoint. But again, I don't know that I'm just, it's an educated guess is all. Yeah. And I would definitely agree with you there. I don't think Sony is really going to be looking to let go of that. But if maybe we can find a good compromise and they can find a good middle ground, I bet they can make a lot of people happy and everybody can make a lot of money. Uh, but moving back on to things you've gotten to work on. So Young Justice, that was another one. That that series I don't think lasts as long as it, it should have. It, it That that could have gone on. I mean, I remember when I, when I first started watching, I was thinking, oh, this is like a more serious version of the Teen Titans. But it was so much more than that. Uh, it was, I mean... I loved the, the, the idea of how it started where they, you know, like all the sidekicks are being taken over into the hall of justice, which looked like the old super friends style. And it's like, they were getting a chance to prove themselves that they could actually go out on their own. And they didn't need to have Batman or Superman or whatever to lead them around that. They could actually form as a team and actually handle things. I loved that, con that concept where it was like, you know, we're proving ourselves. We're not just, we're the kitty, the B team. We are, you know, side, we've been sidekicks long enough. They've taught us everything that what they know. And here we go. You know, I really liked that concept. It was great. It really got you involved with the characters and watching them develop and become better as a team and, uh, and learning to work together as a unit. Uh, even when you had a, a Superman clone who was, uh, had a bit of an attitude and, <laughs> That was great stuff. Uh, so where did some of the concepts for that come around? Uh, you know, we, uh, Brandon Vietti and I, um, were teamed up by our boss, Sam Register. Um, Brandon is, uh, smartest guy I've ever met in animation. Um, and a triple threat. The guy can draw, he can write, um, he can direct, uh, he's so good. Um, 
and uh, but he'd never produced before um, that show, and and of course I produced a few shows before that. So um, Sam teamed us up, and um, uh, you know initially had us working on Green Lantern, mm-hmm. um, and we developed a series uh, about a sort of uh, covert ops team of Green Lanterns. Um, and some of them were, you know, new young, uh, heroes. Um, and then, uh, there was some, del- I don't remember exactly, but there was some delay in the Green Lantern film. This was before it came out. Um, and so they decided to postpone Green Lantern. And so, uh, they actually briefly put us on Space Ghost, uh, which would have been a lot of fun. Um, but we weren't on Space Ghost for very long before he came back to us and said, no, no, not Space Ghost. I want you to do Young Justice. Uh, and Brandon and I were both like, no, we don't want to do that. <laughs> um, because, you know, there were these two great shows. There was Teen Titans, which was a terrific show. Yeah. Um, and then there was Justice League Unlimited, which was another terrific show with a very different tone. Oh, yeah. And neither of those shows had been were that long ago. I mean, particularly if you think back to when we were developing Young Justice, forget about when it finally came on the air or all the time that's passed since. I'm talking about, you know, you have to go back a year or so even before it first aired, or more like two years or 18 months or something. And, you know, at that stage, Justice League Unlimited wasn't, hadn't been off the air that long. Teen Titans hadn't been off the air that long. And we were like, look, they've done a young teen hero show and they've done the big Justice League show what are we going to do that's going to be any different from those two shows? And it was Brandon who really came up with the idea, which is, well, what if um, they became sort of the covert ops team? In other words, we sort of looked at our Green Lantern development and borrowed a bit from that. What if these young heroes sort of became the league's covert ops? Like, in other words, if the Justice League is this big, famous superhero team, they'd be like celebrities, and people would know where they were at any given moment kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And so how do they get around and, and, and do the investigations and the kind of things they need to do in secret. And so we were like, what if these young heroes became sort of the secret weapon for the older heroes? Um, and that was sort of the key that allowed, uh, Brandon and I to, um, figure out, um, an approach to the show that was different from both justice league unlimited and teen Titans. Um, so we did a bunch of things. I mean, first off, the show was first and foremost, uh, uh, spy show. Second, it was a show about real teenagers and only third was it a superhero show. And that felt like it was giving us a tone that was very different. Yeah. And then we sat down and, and I came up with a list of about 50 plus, um, teenage superheroes for us to choose who our core team would be. Um, you know, I've said this before, but it bears repeating. Um, you know, DC comics had four blonde teenage female archers because, you know, three blonde female teenage archers isn't enough. You have to have four. So, you know, we had a lot of characters to choose from Yeah, and we narrowed it down over a period of time to, uh, our original six, which was, uh, of course, the new Aqualad that we created. Which was um, awesome. <laughs> which 
I agree is an awesome character. Uh, yeah. And uh, I think Aqualad was probably the biggest surprise for everybody because, um, you know, everyone knows Robin is cool. Yeah. Um, but we made Aqualad cool. <laughs> oh, <very much laughs> and so. that's much bigger challenge. Um, but we had Aqualad, Robin, Kid Flash. Um, we had uh, Superboy, Miss Martian, and Artemis. And then, you know, we had other characters as well. You know, Speedy became Red Arrow, and he became yeah. an important character. And in season one, we also introduced uh, Zatanna. Yeah. He became a very important character. And people were somewhat surprised initially that we were playing Zatanna as a teenager when she's usually viewed as a Justice League member and more of an adult. And I'm like, well, yes, now she is. But if you go back historically, you know, she was the daughter of Zatara, and Zatara was a contemporary of Superman's originally. Yeah. So obviously she'd be younger. So we just sort of, again, created our own DC universe, which we called Earth-16, um, where we could do things the same when we wanted to and different when we wanted to, because it was a parallel universe, and um, so we could surprise the audience when we chose to, and uh, and we threw in uh, Rocket at the end of season one, and then, of course, we did the five-year uh, time jump between seasons and introduced a whole bunch of more characters in season two. Oh, yeah. And that's one of the shows I think you uh, you presented very well. I've heard of you on a podcast say if you know for those that are if you're really a fan of like an animated series or a television show and it's like especially if it's a comic book type of show and there is a product like a toy or something related, your dollars count as votes to keep that on the air. So go out and oh, yeah. if more people had bought those Young Justice figures and stuff like that, we'd probably still have it on the air today. That's a good lesson. I learned a lot listening to you talk about that once. <laughs> No, I mean, it's true. You know, what I hear often is people are like, hey, the show's gone. It's like, we want it back. And I'm like, well, great. Where were you when we were on the air and there was a real chance? And it's not just true of Young Justice, true of many shows. You know, now you're very enthusiastic, but we needed you then. Yep. Um, and now you're willing to buy all this merchandise, but you didn't buy it then. And they're like, well, I'm, I, you know, I don't collect toys. That's not, I'm like, that's fine. No one's making you do it. But if you're asking me why the show isn't still on the air, it's because we didn't sell enough toys. I mean, it's, it's flat out the truth. We didn't sell enough toys. And the money that came in from uh, Mattel is the money that paid the budget for the show. So when mm -hmm. the toy line failed, which it did, and we can argue about why it failed until the cows come home, but it doesn't change the fact that it failed. Yeah. Um, then what you're talking about is a show that no longer has the money to pay for itself. Um, and then you've got sort of, no matter how many fans sort of step up after the fact, now you're fighting inertia. We're gone. Mm -hmm. Getting it back up and running is way more difficult than continuing something that's it's already up and running. Then you've got momentum on your side. So all it takes is, a, you know, that ongoing push. But after a show's dead and gone, bringing it back is way more difficult. Now, that's not to say I've given up. I haven't. Neither is Brandon. We both want to bring back Young Justice. Hell, I still want to bring back Gargoyles 20 years yeah. later. But, um, but it doesn't change the fact that it's an incredibly difficult thing to do. Yeah. Really, really difficult. And, um, so 
and I'm not talking about Young Justice now, but talking about if there's a show that's on the air now that you love, you got to support it. I don't mean you personally. I mean in general. Yeah. One <laughs> must support the stuff one loves. And what that means is, unless you happen to personally be a person with a Nielsen box in your house, you know, watching it isn't enough because no one's recording your ratings numbers. You know, what matters is buying the merchandise, whether it's t-shirts or CDs or DVDs, uh, toys or, uh, <laughs> toys. So that's, you know, whatever the merchandise is, that's what you need to support. And if you personally don't want toys, buy the toys and give them to your nephew or give them, you know, whatever. Yeah. Um, but that is going to be the thing that keeps shows like that aloft. And it's, but you got to do it when it counts, which is when the show's on, not after it's already gone. Um, and maybe we could all sit there and go, but it shouldn't be that way. And we could all go, yeah, it shouldn't be that way. It doesn't change anything. That's the way it is. Right. Um, it, you there, know, there are people up there. I'll talk about how things should be or shouldn't be. It doesn't change how it is. Right. Because everything does cost money to produce these shows. And so they do look at dollars coming in like, hey, yes, we're selling all kinds of merchandise. There's really a building and there's, we're actually making money. There's profit in this. So, yes, keep producing it. Now, yep. the thing to keep in mind is a lot of people look at these big companies and go, they've got, they could keep making it. They've got the money. They could do it. And I see that. I get it. I get the idea behind that. But it's a little naive. Because yeah. these are, most of these companies are, uh, um, you know, are publicly held companies with stockholders and they've got to show profit all the time. And yes, they've got a lot of money, but they're going to decide how to spend that money. And there's such a thing as opportunity cost, which is that if they've got a show and they gave it a good chance, or at least they feel they've given it a good chance, um, and it didn't make the money then they could spend their money because it isn't literally unlimited. It may seem that way to someone sitting at home somewhere, but they don't literally have unlimited money. They got a lot of money. They've got to decide where to spend it. And they're going to try it on something new. Yeah. You know, um, that maybe will turn out, have this big profit and return on it, uh, as opposed to continue to try it on something they've already demonstrated. Won't give them that profit and return. They're going to not risk the opportunity cost. Instead, they're going to try a new opportunity. Yeah, every show that they create is an investment, and it's got to have returns on it. Right, or they're going to move on. Right. But in, uh, the latest show that you've been working on is, uh, I believe uh, you are, are the, the executive producer on Star Wars Rebels. Is that correct? I was one of three executive producers on the first season of Star Wars Rebels, which is what's airing now. Ah, and it has been excellent, I must say. And I'm not just saying this as a Star Wars fan. <laughs> it's been really good storytelling. I've really liked these characters. Uh, did you get yeah, a chance to write? I'll go ahead. I think they're great characters. Have you gotten a chance to write any of the episodes? Oh, yeah. I wrote, um, yeah, I wrote, uh, Droids in Distress. That's aired already. Um, and, uh, Ranks of Empire has aired already, um, and uh, um, let's see, 
forget what they title because some of the titles changed after I left. But um, it's the the second part of the uh, Empire Day two parter. Um, I think it's called Gathering Forces now. Um, but I don't. I'm not a hundred percent sure. Um, but I wrote those three that have already aired, and there's one more yet to air that I also wrote. Mm. And I'd say the probably the most fun part about Droids in Distress is getting to see Captain Rex in there again from Star Tours. <laughs> yeah, I, I was. You know, I'm a huge um, Paul Rubens fan, so uh, that I, I'll take credit for that actually because um, <laughs> I, I very you know I wanted to get Paul in there to play. Uh, um, Rex and, and, uh, uh I actually, uh, got to voice direct Paul, Dave Filoni usually, uh, uh, I don't want to say usually, he always voice directs, uh, um, Rebels and he's great at it, but he was very cool. And because I'm such a massive Paul Rubens fan, he let me voice direct, uh, Paul. Um, and, uh, so just had great fun, um, with uh, Paul in the booth, and and it was great to see Rex again. Because, oh, you know, yeah. I'm old. So for me, when I think of Star Tours, that's what I think of. Um, yeah. I know they've changed the whole ride, but, uh, but you know, when I think of it, that's where my mind goes. So. Yeah, and I've only ever ridden it with Captain Rex. I haven't been on the uh, the newer version. <laughs> so I haven't either, I... actually. Yeah, one of these days I'll go get and check it out, but I know when I get in there, I'm going to miss Captain Rex. <laughs> because <laughs> I think part of what made Captain Rex so much fun was, of course, Paul Rubens in there, because he, he just, I don't know, he just, even the way when the, when he freaks out, it's just so much fun. Uh, I don't know, there's just something about how the way Paul Rubens does things that he can always make you laugh. Yeah, it's it's great stuff. I mean, we had a good time with that. Now, of course, you know, the host of the ride now is C-3PO, and you can't go wrong with Anthony Daniels either, who also was in that same episode. Um, and was of course his usual amazing self. So, <laughs> yeah. um, so it was, uh, it was a lot of fun being on that show. Was it a little bit intimidating when you were getting started realizing, Oh my goodness, we're, we're doing something that is star Wars and there are so many fans and they have such high expectations. Uh, did that kind of weigh on your mind a little bit? Oh yeah, always. But you know, the same was true with Spider-Man. The same was true with Young Justice. I mean, anytime you're taking a property that's as beloved as that, you know, there are going to be people. And there were lots of people before the show aired, certainly who, um, you know, they hadn't seen any of it, but they were sure it was going to be awful. (laughs) I mean, they go on the internet and people are going, this is awful. We want more Clone Wars. This is awful. And I'm like, dude, you haven't even seen it yet. How do you know it's awful? Well, I know it's going to be awful, you know. Um, but, you know, there are plenty of fans who gave us a chance, and um, most of them are pretty happy. But, yeah, it's very intimidating because, on the one hand, you know that you've got this huge fan base for Star Wars um, with very high expectations um, and often very mature tastes. And at the same time, we also know that there's a whole new generation of kids out there for whom Rebels is literally, literally going to be the first Star Wars thing they ever see. Yeah. Um, And we had to write for both those groups. You know, guys my age who saw Star Wars when they were 13 um, and, you know, in in the 70s when it first came out Mm -hmm. and kids who were 
six, seven, eight years old now who've never seen anything. And we have to make it work for both those groups. And that's a scary thing to try and achieve. But I'm very proud of uh, how the show turned out. And, uh, you know, I take very little credit. I mean, the show was created by Simon Kinberg and Dave Filoni and Carrie Beck. And Simon and Dave were my partners on the first season. And, you know, the show is uh, Simon wrote the pilot. Um, and, and the show is Dave Filoni. I mean, uh, Dave was, of course, the supervising director of Clone Wars. And he's been living Star Wars um, living and breathing it for eight years. And, and, uh, I give uh, him all the credit in the world for, for the show that you see on the air. Um, oh yeah. It's always best when you have somebody who really is a fan of something who jumps in there and dives in and just tries to make the best show they can based off something they love that much. Really? It really shows when there's that much love put into a show. But uh, real quick, though, uh, we still have a little bit of time on these books uh, that you've started writing now. Um, and there's the Reign of the Ghost. And what was the second one? Spirits of Ash and Foam. And the, that second one is, is pretty recent. It just came out, I think, didn't it? Uh, in July. Came out in oh, in July. July. Okay. And so when can we expect a third book? Uh, that's a question. I mean, uh, the fact of the matter is, is that uh, St. Martin's Press, which published uh, the first two books, has not ordered the third one. Um, and the answer there is sales. You know, I mean, yeah. uh, the sales haven't been awful, but they haven't quite reached that level where St. Martin's is feeling like, yeah, this is worth our investment. So um, they haven't said no. It's not like they've already said to me, yeah, it's, it's just not working. Um my editor likes the books a lot. That helps. Um, but they haven't ordered that third book yet. So I've started to do research on a third book. You know, I do that in between other projects. Um, but they haven't ordered it, so I haven't started writing. Um, but I very much want to. And um, very again, very proud of these books. And I really do think that fans of my TV shows would really enjoy these books. Um, but right now, the sales have not reached the level where they've ordered the third one. And uh, as far as research, I think I heard you say once that you do a lot of research, you're studying a lot of mythology and things like that. So I'd say anyone who's a fan of gargoyles and all the things you presented in there is going to love these books with all these legends and things that you're digging up. You're you're grabbing things that people are not necessarily familiar with uh, because you started this and it was beginning in the, the Caribbean. And so you pulled some Caribbean legends, if I'm understanding this correctly. Yeah, the setting of the show is uh, the Ghost Keys, which is a chain of island, uh, chain of islands in the Caribbean on the edge of the Bermuda Triangle. Um, obviously, it's a fictional chain of islands. I made them up, but their the history and the culture and the mythology is real. And um, and I've done a lot of research and very much been borrowing from the mythology of the Taino people, who were the indigenous uh, peoples of the Caribbean when Columbus arrived. Um, and they have this amazing, rich mythology and set of stories that are easily as fascinating as anything you'd read in Greek mythology or Norse mythology. And of course, we've seen hundreds of versions of Greek myths turned into pop culture and Norse myths too, especially, you know, Thor and whatever. But no one uh, from a pop culture standpoint has really done much with these great Taino stories. And so it was a great sort of fresh territory for me um, to try and take these stories and respectfully 
take them into the 21st century. Um, and I've had a great time with that. The second book, Spirits of Ashen Foam, really starts to delve deeper into mythology. We only touch on it a little bit in the first book, but it's in the second book that you really start to explore um, some of these legends and myths of the Taino people. And there'll be more of that, more uh, Mesoamerican mythology and culture uh, in the books that follow if I get the chance to write them. So everybody needs to go and buy these books so we can get a third book because, I mean, this sounds interesting. Right. And it's the same sort of deal, you know, support it now. Don't right. sort of go, well, I, you know, I really wanted that third book. Uh, now I'll go out and buy 50 <laughs> copies or whatever, you know. You know, these books make great Christmas presents. They're really all ages books. You know, uh, I read them to my kids when they were very little. My kids are, you know, uh, 17 and 20 now. But, you know, I read the first book to them when they were very young. And, uh, like, you know, 13, 14, 15 years ago when my kids were like three and six or something like that. And they enjoyed them then. So little kids can enjoy them, but I think there's plenty in there for adults to enjoy and everyone in between. There's a great female protagonist. Um, Rain herself is uh, a 13-year-old girl of Taino descent. Um, and uh, her best friend, Charlie, uh, is sort of the second protagonist of the book. They're ghosts. The second book has a vampire and a mermaid, but... They're from Taino myths, not Western myths, so um, they're different from any vampire mermaid you've ever seen before. Um, and so, again, I think there's a great milieu there, a great uh, arena, and I just hope people support these books so that uh, I get the chance to keep going on them. Yeah, that sounds really cool. I'm going to have to pick up a copy of these. Uh, are they available in audio versions on iTunes or anything like that? Uh, there's no audio version. Um, there is, uh, you can get them as eBooks, um, for Kindle or for, you know, your iPad or whatever. Um, and, uh, and obviously you can get them as, you know, paperback books that you can actually hold in your hand as well. And they're available on Amazon or, or, you know, Walmart or any of those kind of websites, but you can also walk into any bookstore if they don't literally have them on the shelf the day you happen to walk in, you can go to the information desk or the front desk or whatever, and, and any store can order those books for you. Um, and again, the, the first book's called Reign of the Ghosts. Reign is spelled R-A-I-N. Uh, and the second book is Spirits of Ash and Foam. All right. And, of course, if you, if you can't remember the titles, just remember the author – Greg Weisman, W-E-I-S-M-A-N. I'm figure if somebody searched your name on Amazon, they would find these books, wouldn't they? Absolutely. Awesome. And we'll also put some links in the show notes for everybody to go and buy these books because if you buy them, you get a third book because you're going to love these two books. I'm, I'm pretty sure of it because if you've loved everything that Gary has worked on in the past and you love uh, to hear some myths and hear some myths and legends that we're not familiar with because you know this is from a different area. This isn't from Europe or anything like that, like, you know, this, so I'm, I'm, I'm very interested because I like history anyway. So I did study myth in high school. So, but this is stuff that we never got into. So I'm really interested in this. This sounds really cool. It's fun stuff. I mean, obviously I'm biased. I won't pretend I'm not, but <laughs> I really do think it's fun stuff. And I really do think if you like my shows, you will like these books. I, I believe that firmly. 
Okay, a huge thank you for Greg Wiseman coming on the show and sharing all his wonderful insights about writing in the animation industry and producing shows. Uh, That was just fantastic. He's so full of information and very passionate about his craft, and I really enjoyed talking to him, and I hope you really enjoyed listening to him. Now, about winning a copy of his book, what I want you to do is email me at podcast at neverlandpodcast.com, and I want you to tell me the favorite thing that you have that he has worked on that he talked about. Or if perhaps maybe you're an inspiring writer, perhaps maybe something he said that you're really going to take to heart. Tell me something of what you thought, basically, about the talk with Greg Wiseman. That's all you have to do. Just send me that email, and I will randomly select a winner to receive a copy of Reign of Ghosts. Uh, Also... Make sure that you keep your pixie in your pocket and keep that positive and good attitude with you. Because you have to have that good attitude in order to share it with others, and that's the key thing, is to put on a smile, share it with other people, brighten up somebody else's day. Share a little bit of that dizzy magic, a little bit of that pixie dust, and we will see you here back next week. Uh, We've got a lot of exciting things happening this month, and I think you're really, really going to enjoy all of our guests that we're having. Uh, it's, it's, It's the highlight to me of doing this show, is being able to talk to all these people and then share it with you. Uh, So... (laughs) share my passion with me and come back next week at the Neverland Podcast. Thank you for listening to the Neverland Podcast. Please subscribe and rate the show on iTunes, Stitcher, and Blueberry. We love to hear from you on twitter.com slash neverlandpcast and facebook.com slash neverlandpodcast. Leave us a voicemail at 816-226-6492. And send email to podcast at neverlandpodcast.com. Join us next week and we'll once again go to Disney and beyond. The Neverland Podcast is copyright Blue Band Productions and all original content belongs to the same. Other content is copyright of their respective creators and is used under Creative Commons license. BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Maryland. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code OLDLINE150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Maryland today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Maryland only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days from issuance. Please play responsibly. For help, visit mdgamblinghelp.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM National Harbor. Promotional not available in Washington, D.C.